The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And hello to everyone attending online. Happy to have you. So, uh, from time to time, all too often, there are current events which are so big that it feels that to not address them as part of the Dharma talk shouldn't be done. It can't ignore them. That this Dharma practice that we do is a practice to be present for what's happening in the world, to be witnesses and to care. And Some things are so big that they should be named and see where we go. And so the fighting in the Ukraine, I think of has affected me this way. I don't think I could not talk about it in some way. But what do we say? What do we under how we understand this? You know, there was a earthquake in Haiti last summer and that was such a clear event that uh, you know, we through the YouTube channel and at the here at IMC we raised over thirty thousand dollars to dedicate to a wonderful nonprofit, Partners in Health. And uh, and that was seemed clear. But with Ukraine, it, it, it's, there's so much not known yet. It's so unknown how this is evolving and what's going to be needed and what's happening. So in terms of responding to the, what needed there from people like us, not, not, not so obvious to me. But I think uh, being caring and concerned for the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia, and a lot of the ordinary people in Russia are going to suffer. And, and maybe much of the suffering the world's going to suffer. We don't know how this is going to expand and will it spill out beyond the borders of the Ukraine. And uh, so we're kind of just, you know, at least watching now and seeing and hoping that the people who have some role uh, in addressing this are doing it wisely and carefully and for the long term. And it's hard to, hard to know that. It's hard, to, it's easy to second guess, it's easy to have opinions, but it's hard to really know what's going on and what 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 is consequential, what's going to make a difference. 9-11 happened, and as a community, we actually had a special meeting, uh, I think on a Tuesday evening or Wednesday evening, so we could just meet and process it as a community. And then uh, the second invasion of Iraq and the invasion of Afghanistan, and, and these kinds of things go on and on. Uh, you know, they've gone down through history, there's been war, and people attacking each other, and and it seems like most times when it happens, people say it's different this time. And this time Ukraine, it's different because it's always different. It's always the same. In some ways, it's not news that these things happen. 
it's old. And uh, in a bigger perspective, this is what human life is about. Since the time of the Buddha, there was war. The Buddha died. You know, around him, as he as he was getting old and close to his death, he was uh, cognizant of it. Uh, uh, the countries of his area were getting ready to fight and go to war to each other for each other. And he witnessed fortifications being built and on his last travels and before he died. So, what is it like to be a, one of the great? champions of peace and a peaceful way and ethical way of living, non-violent way of living, and dedicated his life to that and then to watch around him as he's old, to watch that violence, you know, getting ready to start. So here we are with this and, uh, you know, and I don't know what to say. Do you don't know what to say? <laughs> if. I could offer opinions, but you're not here for my opinions, exactly. So, what do we say? One of the things that uh, I'd like to say is that uh, this is a time, as if, as if there's ever not a time, but this is a time to stay close to the Dharma. And the word Dharma includes much more than Buddhism. To call, say, to go close to Buddhism, I think, would be almost be a, I don't know, I was going to say an insult to Buddhism, because that's not, Buddhism is not about itself. The Buddhism, the Dharma, is about the, uh, the discovery and expression of a heart that has no conflict a heart which is at peace with itself, a heart which doesn't cause any self-harm, then one of the ways that self-harm is caused is by harming others. <laughs> I can't get away from it. <laughs> the... Um, One of the definitions for evil, a word which I seldom use, but uh, many Buddhist texts in English, uh, translations of the suttas, use the word evil as if it's there in the suttas. And whether it is or not is a scholarly question, whether it's appropriate to translate that way. But one of the definitions of evil is evil is when the mind turns on itself to harm others. The mind turns on itself to harm others. And what this implies <clears throat> is certain actions of evil harms the person who's evil. Certain expressions of hostility harms the person who's hostile. And uh, there's a Jataka tale, these old fables, Buddhist fables that were composed at some point. And uh, there was a donkey who is being led to slaughter, I guess for meat or something. And uh, 
when the donkey realizes it's going to be slaughtered, the donkey's first reaction is to laugh. But then after laughing for a while, then it starts crying. And after it cries for a while, the slaughterer says to the donkey, what's going on with you? I'm about to kill you, but first you laugh and then you cry. Explain yourself. And the donkey said, well, for 500 lifetimes, I was reborn as a donkey. And this, and this will be the last time. It's so great. I'm so happy. It's, I'm done with it. Like he exhausted his karma of being reborn 500 times as a donkey. So he's laughing, apparently. He's happy. And then, but why were you crying? Well, the reason I was reborn as a donkey for 500 times was um, I slaughtered a donkey 500 lifetimes ago. And, and, and now you are going to slaughter me and you will be reborn as a donkey for 500 lives. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, the, kar- the teachings of karma is that what you do comes back to you in some form or other. And the self-harm is a deeply, uh, you know, we harm others, we harm ourselves. So who's harming each other right now? And, uh, and what, how are they harming themselves? So looking at Ukraine and Russia, I, I almost don't want to answer that question. I have that principle in my mind, concern. But the place I want to apply it the most is to ourselves. How do we respond to all this? Because unless we can do something directly, and if we can, please help. But unless you can do something directly, perhaps peace begins with yourself. Perhaps that's the person that you can have the most impact on. And if you can't, if you don't know how to be peaceful, is there any hope for the Ukraine? If we don't know how to resolve our own inner conflict and challenges, who can? Are we expecting other people to do it? Friends of mine just went to Spirit Rock to participate in the month-long retreat there. And, uh, and one person was concerned that it was the wrong time to go because what's happening in the world is and the international stage is so big and such a big concern and this seemed to be Maybe a person didn't say this, but maybe selfish to go off and do meditation like this now. And I said the opposite. Uh, unless you can, you know, do something for for the world directly, uh, this is actually meditating is actually one of the greatest responses you can do. Because this path of meditation that we're offering in Buddhism is a path to get into the bottom of our own. peace, to discover our capacity for living in non-conflict in a wise and generous and supportive way. How not to hate, how not to get angry, how not to be hostile, 
how not to be greedy, how not to have lust for power and money in such a way that we're harming people all around. How not to live in delusion. It's a powerful path that's of really uprooting the attachments, the clinging, the grasping, the fears that uh, are kind of like barbs in the heart or close down the heart or constricted or, you know, limited. It creates a kind of heart that the heart, the, the good heart we have is lost. And when we're not connected deeply to ourselves, then it's our surface reactivity which gets the upper hand. And surface reactivity is usually not so wise. Reactivity that, you know, anger, for example, reacting angrily to the world, is usually not that wise. The consequences are not that good. Sometimes they are they accomplish what we want in the short term. But in the long term, do they really help us live in a better world or better situation? And I've said this story before, but I, so you'll allow, please allow me to say it again because it's such a powerful, for me, lesson that, uh, you know, I try to live wisely, parent wisely with my sons when they were young. And sometimes they were challenging for me with my parenting skills. And I felt like, you know, it was hopeless unless I kind of used my strong voice. So I never hit them or anything, but uh, I never was in danger of it. But uh, sometimes I use a strong voice, which was done consciously, carefully, because I didn't know what else to do. And like, you have to stop what you're doing. That You cannot do that anymore. And it was effective. But then one day, I heard my older son use the same voice to his one-and-a-half-year-old brother. And I said, what have I done? I accomplished what I wanted to do in stopping the behavior, but what was the influence? What, what, a, what a horrible conditioning influence example I gave to a small child that it's okay to do this so he could turn around and do it to his son, his brother. What does his brother learn? <laughs> and, and then it goes on, right? From one person to another, one generation to the other. And they learn somehow at their early age, this is okay. But what are the consequences? What are the consequences of invading another country? The consequences of Certainly the people who kill, get killed and died. When I, when I think of war and people getting killed, I not only think about the people who get killed, but the ripple of their family and their friends and their neighborhood. And it goes on and on and on. And some of this suffering goes on for decades and decades. In my family that I've in, I mean, uh, I grew up very much uh, under the influence. I was born after World War II, but I grew up with it as a very strong presence in my family life. Uh, my parents, my grandparents, my parents-in-law, uh, and their parents uh, all were kind of deeply 
affected by World War II and the violence, so much so that uh, it still affects me to this day. I mean, uh, the, uh, the some of the some of the horrible things that happened to some of them uh, touches me very, very deeply, especially because I have uh, two sons, the older one who knows firsthand, not firsthand, knows, has firsthand conversations with his grandfather. Actually, um, when he was 14, he interviewed my grandfather and did a little video of interviewing him about his, my, grandfa- my father-in-law's experiences in the concentration camps in Germany where he was a prisoner. And you know, it's 70 years ago now or so. And, uh, more and so it's still alive. So these things go on and on. The uh, things that happen around World War II still are alive in communities. Things that happen in civil war are still alive in this country in communities. So, and I, I would argue that, uh, if I may, that uh, the violence of the American Revolutionary War is still rippling, affecting this country, coursing through it in a way that we maybe we don't directly see, but I think that the violence of that time is still in effect here. So it goes on and on, these things. And, uh, and so I think about that ripple effect of violence and, and what, what causes does it do? So in Buddhism, there's a very strong, in the teachings of the Buddha, a very strong, repeated emphasis on non-harming, non-violence, on not killing. The first precept is not to kill. And you don't have to go very far in the teachings of the Buddha to find all kinds of uh, uh, direct teachings about the value of radical non-harming, radical non-violence. Even to the extent that uh, if someone's harming you, he says, do not give in to harm. He does say that you can, uh, you can strike back if someone attacks you in order to escape. So you don't have to just stand there and passively be beat up. But, uh, but there is this radical, strong idea of nonviolence. And so some people, some uh, kings in ancient India interpreted this to, that they were going to uh, have their army stand down and not have violence, not to have capital punishment, and all these kinds of things. And, uh, and I have, I've, I've had an adult life where I've, I felt, ever since I was about probably 18, dedicated to uh, nonviolence. And it was relevant for me because when I was 18, uh, I was of the age that could be drafted for the Vietnam War. So it was very alive that I would be called up and uh, had to go and fight a war across the Pacific. And uh, so I had to kind of contend with that. You know, so war was really uh, alive and present. And what do I do if I get drafted? And uh, and so I was not going to fight. I knew that I would not go. Uh, I'm I'm from Norway, and uh, originally, 
And uh, I went back there a few times and I wasn't drafted uh, because my draft number was so low at that point. So I never didn't have to go. But a few years later, a couple of years later, I went to live in Norway, go back for a year. And there I was uh, uh, surprised to discover that there was a movement of, that you could, you could be a conscientious objector in Norway. It's mandatory military service for men back then. But you could be a conscientious objector. And if you were, uh, you, you didn't have to do the one-year military service that all males had to do. But you had, you had to do two years of um, public service. A friend of mine spent two years, almost two years, working in a hospital uh, in order to do the, you know, the, the equivalent to support the country, I guess. But some of the conscientious uh, uh, objectors in Norway protested. And they said that um, they knew about Russia being right nearby, and Russia, you know, at that time was still kind of pushing the edges of the border, kind of see, you know, testing things, I guess. And so people were worried about Russia and Norway in the mid-1970s. And, uh, and so some of the conscientious objectors who didn't want to become soldiers and fight uh, wanted, wanted to be able to defend the country if it was attacked. And they were asking for uh, training in civil disobedience, training in nonviolent resistance. And, uh, and they were lobbying, trying to get that to happen. I don't know if it ever happened in Norway, but it has happened now in Sweden and Finland. They have uh, trainings now. I don't know how extensive it is, but they train some people there in the techniques of nonviolent civil disobedience and nonviolent uh, resistance. And the reason I can bring it up in the in following up talking about how important nonviolence is in the teachings of the Buddha, non-harming, that very too often in, when people hear that, uh, they say, well, uh, that just means we have to passively allow people to attack us. And the, no self-defense is allowed. You're not supposed to f- allowed to fight back. And down through the centuries, uh, Buddhist kings and Buddhist countries have justified uh, standing armies and fighting defensively uh, because defending yourself is allowed in the Dharma, they say. Uh, just not attacking people, not being the, not the aggressor. But how do you know who's the aggressor and who's the defender? I mean, right now, I think uh, the president of Russia, Putin, thinks of his, himself as a defender. That's, at least that's what he says. And he keeps referring to being defensive. But, you know, for many of us, it looks like he's the aggressor. But, so where do you decide that? So if the, if the justification for war is that it's the, you know, that, that's the only way to defend yourself, then the Buddhist principle of nonviolence is, is conditional, it's situational. And then which situations do we live by it and which don't we live by it? When I was also around 19 or so, I came under, very much under the influence of a particular uh, scholar in the United States, uh, academic named Jean Sharp. And Jean Sharp wrote these wonderful books. He was a scholar of nonviolent civil disobedience efforts around the world. The nonviolent way and resistance by which uh, people uh, uh, resisted successfully 
uh, dictators and authoritarian regimes and things like that. And he has a he had a he has a three volume book on uh, nonviolence that uh, goes through. It was kind of eye opening for me to see. He goes through and chronicles and lists all the different techniques, sophisticated techniques that are used by people who engage in this kind of work, and and how so many times it's been successful, and sometimes it hasn't. Uh, it was interesting. He points out that <coughs> you know Mahatma Gandhi is the great exemplar of uh, nonviolence, civil disobedience. Uh, he was inspired by civil disobedience in this in Russia in 1905. The uh, Nicholas II, who was the Tsar of Russia at that time, uh, uh, there were massive public strikes and demonstrations, nonviolent ones, on the part of the demonstrators, um, that uh, eventually uh, forced, caused the Nick, the, the Tsar to create the first uh, parliament in Russia, the Duma. And then he had to contend with the members of parliament. They shared the power and, you know, they continued that way. But So Mahatma Gandhi saw that and he said, wow, that can be done. And that inspired him in his work. So it's interesting that how important Russia, what happened in Russia as an example, given what's happening now. In the Ukraine, there was the Orange Revolution. I know you know about that in 2004. And that was a student-led movement of nonviolence that uh, brought down the, the, uh, the, the Russian-supported president of Ukraine who it probably was uh, rigged elections and a lot of corruption. But the uh, those students in the Orange Revolution 2004, they were reading Gene Sharp. Uh, he he hit, because he, he was one of the people I know who spent a lot of time as an academic writing and describing the techniques and the methods of nonviolent civil disobedience. And he says, people will die with nonviolent civil disobedience. Some people say, well, it doesn't work because if you put yourself on the front line, you know, they'll just kill you. They will, maybe. But if you put soldiers on the front lines, they'll die too. Fewer people, his argument, fewer people die with civil disobedience than with armed 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 struggle. So when I say all this, uh, <clears throat> that in Buddhism, the, the central uh, ethical tenet is nonviolence, non-harming and not killing. It's possible that that strategy, that way of living, should not be done naively that this is something we bring our wisdom to, our intelligence to, our reflections to, to really engage and think about how can do this? What's the practical way? What's the wise way? What's the active way to do this? Too many people want to defend themselves and their first strategy is to get a gun in this country. Are they really safer? Is that the, the instinct is that's how you make yourself safe, but is that really a safe way? 
What about doing the research, the reflection, and look at all the alternative ways to become safe? Are there other ways to become safe than having a gun? Are there better ways of becoming safe than having a gun? However, it takes research and intelligence and engagement in this process. And not many people want to do that. There's some, you know, that we want to do the instinctual so we can get on with our lives. So here we are with the Ukraine and this major event in this world. The world's under so much stress these days with the pandemic and all kinds of other things and politics. It's almost like the more stress there is, the more stress it produces. The more people feel the stress of it all, the worry of it all, the fear of it all, the more they take on stress. And then when we're stressed, it's a recipe for more reactivity. It's a recipe for anger and for fear and for dysfunctional ways of responding. With too much stress, if we don't not careful with our stress, we add to the stress in the world. So this practice that we do is a revolutionary thing. It's a radical thing to do. It's not, it's finding a way to not contribute to the stress of the societies of the world. It's a radical way of being someone who does the opposite. Someone who's almost like a, a healthy a, a sink where the stresses of the world can come into us. You know, we experience it and know it and are present for it. And somehow we can process it and empty it and de-stress de ourselves from it. We can go through the world committed to not adding to the stress of the world. Not committed not to add to the violence of the world, to the anger of the world. To do our work is such an important thing, what we're doing. Someone has to do it. Some people have to show everyone else that it's possible to become free of these instinctual forces that one way or the other contribute to causing more harm, more harm, and responds to harm with more harm and passes it on from generation to generation. Someone has to do this work. And there are people who are doing it all over the world we're not alone in doing it. But I think this is what this practice we're doing is about, most importantly. And I would say that uh, the reason I'm he here today, and because I'm here, you're here today, IMC is here in Redwood City today, one one of the uh, causes for why this whole YouTube thing is happening and we have video camera and happening today. One of the conditions for all this uh, is because I believe, I believed when I was quite young that this work of finding peace in oneself, becoming free in oneself of clinging and and reactivity is a way of responding to war in this world. My whole first interest in Buddhism 
was as a response to the Vietnam War. My whole reason to become, to dedicate my life to Buddhism was because of witnessing from a distance uh, the violence of war in the early 80s and being deeply impacted by it. War has been part of my life and, the, you know, something I'm conscious of and aware of without ever, I never had the misfortune of being in the presence of it, really, hardly at all. But uh, it's been, it's part of my, my whole life experience that uh, it's influenced me and, and it's part of the reason why I'm dedicated to be a Dharma teacher and to do all this. For me, this is not only stress reduction, so we can go back to work and live stress-free at work. This is a revolutionary activity if we go to the depths of our heart and really find a way to uproot the deepest attachments we have. And we become peacemakers for this world. And maybe it's just locally, maybe it's just for our neighbors, But uh, how does it ripple out from your neighbors? Who, who do you know? Who, who, you don't know who you touch and how this goes out and out and out into the world. Peace begins with ourselves. If you want a peaceful world, start with yourself. Find out how you can be at peace. Find out how you can walk in peace, how you can speak in peaceful ways, how you can relate to others in ways that they don't feel, that they feel safe and feel like there's another way. And and learn how to be in conflict wisely. This is, you know, we're not going to not be in conflict with people. I think that's that's not part of what life is about. But can we be in conflict peacefully with them? Can we be in conflict or in a sense where the the motivation for how we are with the conflict is cooperation, not competition, not not to win and they lose. But can the motivation be, how can we both win? There will be conflict. Conflict doesn't, to have peace, it does not mean the absence of conflict. To have peace is the absence of harm. So that's what, uh, not knowing what to do for the Ukraine at this juncture. I feel like we do the the other great thing for the Ukraine. At least, let's do our practice. Stay close to the Dharma. Stay close to the practice. Let what's happening in the world be an inspiration to evoke a wonderful aspiration that this practice is so important, so valuable. You know, it is a way of responding to the world to happily know that you have something precious in this practice. Maybe there's ways you can give yourself to this practice a little bit more 
that will feel like a res- that you know is a response to what's happening in the world. You're not ignoring it. You're responding in this powerful way by becoming a person who's a beacon for peace. Wouldn't that be great for all of us to do? So those are my thoughts today. And uh, wouldn't it be great if this is the last time I give a talk in responding to war in this world? I have, I have hope that that's the case, though that's probably naive. And one of the reasons I have some hope is that as much as we're seeing fighting going on in the Ukraine, we're seeing right currently at least the international community responding nonviolently and economically. Who knows? <clears throat> Maybe it'll teach us that war is old fashioned and war doesn't really work. And we have to find other ways to work through our conflicts than through war. So I'm hoping, so I have high hopes for the sanctions, the economic debate, uh, that this will be seen as a nonviolent way of responding to aggression and it'll make a difference. So may we all find ways to be nonviolent in our lives and support that in the world around us. And if you want to learn more, uh, read some of the works of Gene Sharp. He's a So, thank you. <laughs>